The One Hundred Years' War, the de Guesclin period, Charles V's plan for England in 1372. Now, Christmas festivities in French court in 1371 were especially splendid and more than usually significant politically. They were attended by all the king's closest advisors, his brother, the Duke of Berry, the Duke of Bourbon, the constable, Bertrand de Guesclin, and most of the captains who had borne the burden of the war. The plans formulated among small groups of counselors over the past month were now submitted to those who were to carry them out, part of the formalities of consultation on which medieval government depended, even in the age of autocracy. The main military operation proposed for 1372 was not to be the reconquest of Poitou, a project which had been close to the king's heart since the early months of the war. Poitou had ancient connections with the royal house. It had been formally added to the appanage of the Duke of Berry as early as November of 1369, together with the neighboring provinces of the Angoumois and the Santage, in expectation of their swift recovery from the English. These regions constituted the heart of English Aquitaine, where the prince's government maintained significant garrisons and had the support of almost all the nobility. It was not going to be possible to detach them by covert negotiations or with local potentates, followed by limited military operations in the way that had been so effective in Quercy, the Rouget, and even Limousine. After the halting start of the past three years, tax revenues were now flowing strongly into the king's coffers. It was intended to invade Poitou with a field army of 4,000 men. The command would be given to the Duc de Berry, in deference to his rank and his position as nominal overlord of the region to be conquered. But the real leader would be the constable, the Duke of Bourbon and Marshal Sancerre. The Duke of Anjou was not present at the festivities and was not party to these decisions. But Charles V intended to maximize the pressure on the English administration by getting Anjou to mount a simultaneous invasion of Aquitaine from Languedoc, the first significant operation there since 1370. The king had been negotiating directly with the delegation of the towns of the Seneschalet of Toulouse and Paris over his brother's head and had persuaded them to grant a special war tax of 350,000 livres de tours. In January 1372, this arrangement was ratified in Anjou's presence by the estates of Languedoc. They granted the duke a hearth tax of three francs per hearth, later increased to four, for a period of a year, and the gabelle de sel, the salt tax, for the same period, on the strict condition that the proceeds were to be spent exclusively of the war. This represented almost as heavy a burden of taxation as they had experienced in the first two years of the war. 4,000 men was not a large force for the reconquest of Poitou, even with a major diversionary campaign in the Garonne Valley. Success depended on preventing the English from sending large-scale reinforcements to Aquitaine or mounting a major invasion of France by the north. Over the past few months, Charles V had returned to the project for invading England. He no longer imagined, if he ever had, that the country could be conquered, but he believed that a landing of a force on the English coast would tie down English forces in the defense of their homeland and prevent his adversary from sending expeditionary armies to the continent. Initially, the French king had pinned his hopes on the Scots. David II had unexpectedly died at the age of 47 in February 1371 and had been succeeded by his amiable but unwarlike nephew, Robert Stuart. The French king had made serious bids for Scottish support in the first few months of the new reign. 
In June of 1371, he had received a Scottish embassy at Vincennes, which had come to notify him of Robert's ascension and to renew long-standing treaties of friendship between the two countries. The embassy was led by the experienced and loyal Bishop Wardlaw of Glasgow. Its members included Archibald Douglas, a good friend of France who had fought in French armies in the Battle of Poitiers. It was probably Douglas who was responsible for the secret agreement made between Charles V's counselors at Vincennes on June 30, 1371. By this document, Charles V agreed to arrange for the Anglo-Scottish truce to be annulled by the Pope. As soon as this had been achieved, the French king would pay 100,000 nobles, or 33,000 pounds, to enable Robert to salve his honor by paying off his predecessor's ransom before making war on England. Charles was prepared to send a thousand French men-at-arms to Scotland for two years and to pay the wages of a thousand Scots to support them. Whether Robert authorized Douglas to make such an agreement is not at all clear, but he certainly did not ratify it when the ambassadors returned to Scotland in the autumn. In the event, the project came to nothing. The Scottish king was content to confirm the French alliance, but only in the most simple terms. He would not promise to fight the English unless they were foolish enough to repudiate the truce. Well, spurned by the Scots, Charles V turned possibly of fomenting a rebellion in Wales, a plan which had already failed in 1369. Once more, the instruments of Charles' plans would be the persuasive Owen of Wales and his companion-in-arms, Jack Wynne, since the fiasco of 1369, Owens had succeeded in expanding his influence in Wales. Periodic indictments disclosed the existence of small cells of Owens' supporters in north of Wales, some of whom sent him money and recruits. Many more must have escaped the attention of the prince's officers. Owen had kept his largely Welsh company of 200 men in being by taking employment as a jobbing mercenary wherever he could find it. In the autumn of 1371, he was one of a number of mercenary captains of diverse nationalities in the service of the German city of Metz. Towards the end of 1371, however, he was recalled to France. He was probably among the counselors with the king at Christmas. His role was in the coming campaign would be to take command of a small army which was to sail for Wales as soon as shipping could be found for it. The Castilian ambassadors arrived in Paris, probably during December, with their fears of invasion and their offers of naval insistence. Charles seized the opportunity. Henry of Testamara's emissaries received prompt and generous assurances that Charles would, if necessary, send the French army to Castile to frustrate any Lancastrian invasion. In return, he exacted a promise that twelve Castilian galleys and eight sailing carracks would be sent urgently to join the French fleet at Harfleur. Their first task would be to escort Owen's army to Wales, perhaps as early as February or March 1372. Charles V was well informed about what was happening in England, the notable persons well disposed to us in whom we have every confidence, whom the king identified as a source of his intelligence. May have included people close to the English court or may have simply been Anglophone spies sent to pick up the gossip of Westminster. However, the source, within days of the dispersal of Edward III's great council, the French king had received more or less accurate reports of its proceedings in spite of all the English king's precautions. By the end of January 1372, he knew about his enemy's plans for landing an army in Brittany. Either then or soon afterwards, he learned about the mission of the Earl of Pembroke to Aquitaine. As a result, his scheme for a diversionary landing in Wales was becoming more ambitious. About March of 1372, the size of the landing force was trebled and the scheme radically altered. The new plan was that Owen would first sail with his company to northern Castile, 
where he would be joined by a promised Castilian ships and a thousand men-at-arms recruited from the French mercenaries in the service of Henry of Testamara. Diversion would also have been advantage of enabling the fleet to proceed to the Scillies on its way to Wales from the south with the aid of prevailing westerly winds instead of the laboriously tacking them into from the east and running along the gauntlet of England's western fleet. The task of persuading Henry of Testamara to cooperate in these plans was confided to an emissary sent from France, the Burgundian knight Jean de Ray. He was a veteran of Castilian affairs, whose knowledge of the country went back to the siege of Algeciras in 1344. He knew Henry Testamara well, and may have been present at the negotiation of the naval treaty in 1368. Henry had to be persuaded to part with most of his foreign mercenaries who were keeping him on the throne. The mercenaries themselves had to be induced to leave the country where they're living off the fat of the land in order to embark on a perilous voyage to one of the poorest regions in Europe. If this provided too much to ask, Jean de Ray was instructed to press Owen to be reinforced with Castilian troops instead. In either case, it would be necessary to spend large sums of money in Castile on shipping, crews, and soldiers. Charles hoped that Henry of Testamara might meet the cost himself, if necessary, by setting it off against the debts which he owed to Charles V and Louis of Anjou for their past support. But if Henry would not pay, Jean was empowered to raise the money from moneylenders on the French king's credit, or in a last resort, of taking up to 60,000 francs from the proceeds of Bertrand de Guisclin's Castilian estates, which the constable was in the process of selling. In about March 1372, Jean de Ray left Paris for Castile to try and make this thing work. So it's going to be interesting to see how this turns out. Now the sources for this, the Chronicles by Foissart, the Hundred Years' War by Perrois, the Hundred Years' War by Nylans, and the Hundred Years' War, Volume 3, The House Divided by Sumption. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com. And ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.